Bethel World Outreach Church. Reaching a city to touch the world. Tonight we have a special guest with us who's going to be delivering a uh, convocation speech that I hope gets our graduating students fired up. Pastor Brian Taylor, why don't you come on up? Pastor Brian... You know, I was thinking, man, you're getting old. I was asking Brian for his timeline. Brian came to Vanderbilt in 1997 on a football scholarship and met his wife, Siobhan, here. In 2002, he went to Every Nation School of Ministry and became a campus minister here locally, uh, serving at Vanderbilt, as well as other campuses. Five years later, he went down to Orlando, Florida, where Tim Johnson, who used to be the senior associate pastor here of the church, went uh, because that was his hometown. He went back there uh, to plant a church. That church is doing well. And uh, Brian uh, and his wife served there faithfully for a number of years. It was during that time that he started work on a master's in uh, Christian leadership from Asbury Seminary, a reputable school just up in Kentucky. And then in 2013, went to do very hard work, and that is just to plant a church from scratch. You know, 80% of all church plants fail in the first five years. And of the ones that remain, only 20%, 80 of those, 80% of those fail in the next five years. That's across the board statistics for church planting, at least in North America. And so Brian has successfully planted a church there in Cincinnati. He's now doing a uh, D-Min, that's a doctor of ministry, a doctorate in preaching and leadership from Asbury. And he and his wife have three children, one born in each city yes. where they've been. So Elijah was born here in Nashville. Saniah was born in Orlando. Joshua was recently born up in Cincinnati. I asked him how many more children he's going to have. Cincinnati's it is what I understand. So I know we sang the song, I will go anywhere, and I will, but I think we're done having babies in different cities. Anyway, would you so, give a warm yeah. welcome to Pastor Brian? Know yourself, man. Good. First of all, I just I want to honor... Um, I want to honor this church and honor the leadership here. I know Pastor James, Pastor Rice, but even Pastor Bruce and the team, Margaret, everybody who's been a part of this work, because it's one thing to say, you know what, we have a vision to reach a city to touch the world. And it's another thing to actually prepare people to do it. Right. You know, we have a, we have a saying that, we, um, that I, I speak to our staff and to our leadership team in Cincinnati quite a bit. And that is, you prepare for what you expect. You will prepare for that which you expect. If you don't expect to do anything, there's no need to prepare. But I look at the sacrifices, Ricky, um, that people made to prepare to be here, and especially with these graduates here. And it just tells me I'm in alignment here with everyone here that says, you know what, we are expecting a great harvest. Not only in this city, or the cities represented, but literally to touch the world. So um, can we just give them one more hand clap, just honoring them here. Now, I do want to say this, because I can, I can relate to being a student. Um, as was mentioned before, I was a student right down the street at Vanderbilt, but now this is my second time around here at Asbury. And we have a cohort of people that are going through the program at the same time from different places around the world, which is great. And so one of the things they wanted to do for us when we first started, they wanted to give us the opportunity to really get to know each other and play some games together. 
And so I don't know if any of you guys know this or not, but if you get a group of pastors, uh, we can be pretty competitive together. Um, yeah, um, praise the Lord. So um, with all that said, we, we, we got together and they wanted to play a game which was the equivalent of blindfolded dodgeball. Yeah, and the, the way the game would work, if you could imagine like a giant sand pit, you would have a partner and one of the partners would be blindfolded and the other partner, which was me, I was not the blindfolded one, was yelling out instructions. And so we had probably about anywhere from 30 to 40 people in our class. So if you can imagine the pandemonium, all of us yelling, screaming, turn left, duck, throw it to your right. They can't see what's going on, but we're, we're yelling all those things out. And admittedly, we actually got out pretty quickly. And we realized why when, when my partner came back, he looked at me, he said, Brian, it was hard for me to distinguish your voice from all the other voices that were around me. Now, mind you, we were just getting to know each other, and there were a lot of other voices around. So we started practicing, okay, here's what my voice sounds. So we were actually preparing just in case we had another go-round at it. But I was reminded of a simple and powerful truth, is that if you can learn to recognize someone's voice when it's quiet, and you can learn how to recognize their voice in the chaos. You know, if there's one thing that I believe that we all have in common, whether you're in vocational ministry or whether you're making disciples in the business arena, the educational arena, or you might be raising up world changers at your home, one of the things that we all have in common is that we have voices that are demanding a lot from us. Can anybody relate to that? We all have voices that are constantly relating and, and constantly calling us to do things and constantly calling and trying to direct our lives. And if we're not careful, God's voice can be drowned out in the midst of all of that. But I have some encouragement for us today. That if we can learn to recognize God's voice in the quiet, then we can learn how to recognize God's voice in the chaos. I want to turn to Luke chapter 5. We're going to spend some time in Luke chapter 5. I want to open in verses 15 through 16. Actually, read here. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Um, verse 15, it says, But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Verse 16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. I'm asking that you would give us the ability to distinguish your voice even in this time. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would be a supernatural translator. God, that you would take these words and speak to our hearts in ways that only you can. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a lot of different words that you could use to describe the ministry of Jesus. A lot of different words. But you know one word that you might not think of that could probably describe the ministry of Jesus when he was walking here on the earth? It's chaos. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Luke chapter 5, in the very first verse, one of the things that we'll notice is that there are crowds of people pressing around Jesus. There were a lot of people pressing around. Everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds, there were multitudes. Now, why would that be the case? You raise some people from the dead, heal some people that are sick, feed some people who are hungry, you're probably going to have a lot of people around you crowding around. 
Jesus had a lot of things going on, a lot of chaos that was around him. But here's what I want you to know is that the reason is because there were some amazing things happening. If you look in Luke chapter 5, what you'll find is that there's some pretty significant stories of what happens in the ministry of Jesus. If you go to verse 12, we see a story of a man who is um, full of leprosy. Now, leprosy was a skin disease, but it was more than just like a little rash or anything like that. Leprosy was a, a, a disease that would cause someone to be disfigured to the point that they were actually ostracized from the community. Could you imagine that you had a condition that was so bad that when you came around people, you yelled, unclean, unclean? And so this is what this man with leprosy who came up to Jesus and asked for healing, and Jesus does the unthinkable. He is not only willing to heal him, he reaches out his hand and touches him. This man is healed, and Jesus tells him, listen, don't tell anybody else what happened. But you know how it is when something really exciting in your life happens, right? Because we share that which we're the most passionate about. That's why there's so many selfies on social media. We share that which we're most passionate about. So, all right, y'all catch that later. So, so after that, in verse 15, what do we see? We see what we read earlier. Crowds of people, a lot of people getting in line for healing. All these things are taking place. This is great. I mean, could you imagine the newsletters that Jesus would be sending? Could you imagine what his Twitter following would have been during this time? This is it. And after this, a couple of verses later, we see another powerful story. Starting in verse 17. Jesus is in a house and he's ministering and he's healing people. And in the midst of this, you have the roof comes off the top. And four friends lower a man with, on a mat into the room. And this man comes in. I don't have time to go in details of this story. He comes into the building paralyzed, unable to walk, being carried by his friends. And he walks out of the meeting carrying his mat, praising God, glorifying God. Now, how many of you would say that's the type of ministry I want to see happening? You have powerful stories going on in Luke chapter 5. You have a man with leprosy who was healed. Then you have a couple of verses after that story. You have a man who's paralyzed, is walking and glorifying God. This powerful story, and in between these two amazing narratives, you have one verse. Verse 16. Verse 16 says this. We read it earlier. It says, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Now, this is a little bit surprising to me. It's not surprising for what the verse actually says. Because we would probably imagine that Jesus would pray. Right? That, that seems like a thing that Jesus walking on earth would do. But there's a lot, there's sections in the Gospel of Luke that talks about prayer. And so it would make sense for Jesus' prayer life to be mentioned in a section talking about prayer. But Luke chapter 5 is not a section talking about prayer. Luke chapter 5 is a section dealing with all the things that are happening in ministry. Some amazing things are happening. Lives are being changed. People are being healed. Crowds are coming. And smack dab in the middle of these amazing accounts, you have the prayer life of Jesus mentioned in verse 16. It's almost as if Luke is trying to let us in on the reality that there's more to the story than what people see in public. That if you want to understand the public life of Jesus, you're going to have to understand something about the private life of Jesus. And we see that Jesus, is said, would often 
go into the wilderness and pray. Now, one of the things you realize when you read through the scripture is that a lot of times wilderness has negative connotations with it when people think about going to the wilderness, right? No, nobody thinks about, you know, I'm just going to the wilderness today. I mean, that's just not the, the thing to do. When you think about the wilderness, you probably think about the Israelites that are in the desert or in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief before they go into the promised land. Or you might even think about Jesus who is being tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. But when we're talking about the wilderness here, he talks about, and some of your translations will say this, a secluded place. A place alone. See, Jesus understood urgency in ministry, but he also understood what it was like to step away from the busyness and from the demands of all the other voices and tune in to the voice of God. And see, this is what it may look like in our own lives. It's when we sit down with God's word and we're sitting with him and we begin to meditate on the law of Moses. Or maybe one of the things that I love to do is uh, getting an opportunity to just praise God alongside with David as I read through the Psalms. Or maybe you'll find yourself heartbroken and weeping as you read with Jeremiah through the book of Lamentations. Or you, perhaps you'll read through the Gospels and you find yourself in awe of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. But what is it? It's an opportunity to tune up the voice of God in our hearts and get away from the distractions and the noise so that we can continue to do what God has called us to do. And one of the things that I can uh, remember a few days ago, my, uh, my, my wife got uh, a unique message from a, a mutual, from a friend of ours that also used to be one of my first partners. So um, this would have been back in 2002, just a couple of years ago. In 2002, and I can remember sending a letter of a poem that I wrote. It was called The Greatest Job on Earth. I was just, I was beside myself that God would actually allow me to do what I was doing. Like, God, you're going to allow me to do this? You knew what I was doing a few years ago, but God, thank you. And I won't, I'll spare you me going through my, my poetry. I, I am, that, that's not my, well, I could do it a little bit, but I'm just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give it to you right now. But the, the, the poem was called The Greatest Job on Earth. And what this friend of ours did, she sent back, she said, I was rummaging through some of my old files and my, my, my letters, and I saw this letter she said this to my wife, that your husband sent to me years ago, back in 2002. And she wrote this. She said, I hope he's still as passionate about ministry now as he was back then. And I can tell you this. Since 2002, there's been a lot of great things that have happened in ministry. And there's been a lot of challenging things that have happened in ministry. But I can say this with full conviction standing on this stage. I am just as passionate for what God has called me to as I ever have been in my whole life. And the reason is not because everything out here has been amazing all the time, even though we've seen some pretty cool stuff happen. It's because I've had the wonderful privilege of communing every single day with my Heavenly Father, and it has sustained my life. And Jesus knew how to step away and get into the presence of his heavenly father. And it said that this wasn't something that he did from time to time. It said that he did this often. If you read through the gospel of Luke and you pay attention to this, if you ever read through it, pay attention to this. The, the, throughout the gospel, we'll find the tension 
of the expectations and the need of the ministry to the masses and the need for Jesus to get alone by himself to pray. That's teased out throughout the whole gospel. And so what you see in Luke chapter 4, verse uh, 42, I'm just going to reference some things real quick. Is that all right? So I can kind of speed through this. Luke chapter 4, verse 42, it tells us that the crowds were searching for Jesus, but Jesus was in a secluded place. We know from Mark chapter 1, verse 35, that what he was doing in that secluded place was praying. A little bit later in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, we see the story when Jesus is with masses and crowds of people, but then he goes up to a mountain to pray all night. And then he comes back and joins again with the masses in ministry, and he starts to appoint who the 12 apostles are going to be. Later on in Luke chapter 9, what you'll find is that Jesus goes to what we call Mount Transfiguration, and he goes up there. He takes three of his closest disciples with him, and he leaves crowds. He goes up there, he prays, has a moment, and then comes back in verse 37. When he comes back down from the mountain, there's crowds of people waiting for him. All throughout the gospel, we see that tension between the needs of ministry and the need to be alone with the Heavenly Father. And this is seen all throughout, all throughout. Fast forward to Luke chapter 22. Jesus is now getting ready to face the greatest challenge that he's ever had to face in his ministry life. He's not only lived the life that we were supposed to live, but now he's getting ready to die the death that we are supposed to die in our place. And I want us to read what Jesus says and what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 22 as he goes into his wilderness moment before he goes to the cross. And this is what it says, starting in verse 39. It says, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Here's what I want you to pay attention to, is that in the most difficult hour of Jesus' life, he had a place to go to. You don't wait until the middle of the storm to fix a leaky roof. And Jesus is now in this place with God, the Father, knowing what he's about to experience. And what I want us to, to see when we look at all these passages about Jesus and his prayer life, they are descriptive, but in many ways it's also prescriptive of what ministry life is supposed to look like. It's the balance between alone with God in ministry, in public life. And let me just make this caveat. When I talk about getting in the wilderness moments, in those secluded moments with God, this is not at the expense of local fellowship. I probably don't have to say this to this group because you're here. And if you didn't value fellowship, I would imagine you probably wouldn't be here right now. I'm not talking about you if you're watching this online. People get kind of weird when they're like, I oh, just me and God just here and by ourselves. I'm not saying that. But there's something that we can learn from the wilderness. Here's one thing that we learn. The wilderness is a place of surrender. It's a place of surrender. See, what Jesus says here in verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Listen, I know we look at Jesus and say, he, he, you know, 
He had no challenges or life was just easy. He just kind of floated one foot above the earth, not having to get his feet dirty. But he realized, listen, I don't want to have to deal with this, but he's going to deal with it anyway. But listen to where he ends up here. He says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet. Everybody say yet. Yet. Not my will, but yours be done. No matter what he was feeling and experiencing in that moment, he was able in that place with the Father, alone in prayer, willing to resubmit his will to the will of the Father. He was able to find surrender. You know, um, one of the things I used to wonder, I, I played football, as we mentioned before, and I used to wonder when I was watching football growing up, why would I, why I would see people who were playing, they were, they were they'd come off the field and then they'd go on the sidelines and then they'd pick up the phone and start talking on the phone. Any of you guys ever seen that if you ever watched a game? And, and I used to wonder, well, why would they get on the telephone in the middle of the game? I don't know why certain things just stick out to me, but that stood out to me. I just didn't understand why they would get on the phone. And so I can remember when I finally got an opportunity when I went to college and started playing right down the road from here. I started to understand, okay, here's what's happening. Before the game starts, you would have some coaches go on the sideline, but then there are other coaches who go into the skybox. The reason they're in the skybox is because they're there to watch the game, but they're watching the game from a different perspective. Because when you're in the game, here's what happens. You have a limited perspective. You see a guy coming at you over here, or you may see a few things happening over here, and it's like, man, where did that person come from? You go to the sideline. When you go to the sideline, what happens is when you pick up the phone, they're not just talking about, hey, what you doing for lunch today? They're actually trying to converse about, hey, what are you seeing taking place? The person who's looking in from the skybox is saying, here's what's happening, and they begin to impart, this is the game plan, follow it. So even if I don't see it in my near situations, I'm able to follow the game plans because I trust that his perspective is better than mine. You, you guys, I'm in a room full of preachers. You know where I'm going with this. When we have opportunities to commune with God, even when we don't see things from his perspective, we're able to hear his heart. And we can surrender to his plan because we trust his perspective, even when we don't see it the way that it needs to be seen. See, the wilderness is a place of surrender, but it's also a place of strength. In verse 43, what we see here, it says, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. So Jesus was able to gain strength in that moment. See, what you'll find right before Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, we see, yes, the divinity of Jesus, but we also see the humanity of Jesus. We call this the hypostatic union. The divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. How does that work mathematically? God. And we see Jesus in the humanity in a place of dropping sweats of blood, having to face what he's having to face. And in that moment, he's able to be strengthened in the presence of God. I don't know if any of you have ever um, been in ministry situations that demanded courage from you. But live long enough, there will be times where there is strength that you're going to need that goes beyond your own. Jesus was able to find it in the presence of his heavenly father. 
Reminds me of David. I'll just reference this back in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. What you'll find is that David just came back from, with, this is before he became king, just came back with all of his, his fellow compadres, and they were doing some raid, and they come back and realize that all their family and their children have been taken away. And all the people wanted to stone, um, stone David. Let me tell you, leadership one-on-one, they praise you when things are going great. But let some things go wrong, you're in the target. And it tells us in verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. You want to have long-staining ministry to not just start strong, but stay strong and finish strong. we got to be able to find strength beyond our own skills and our ability, but in the presence of the Lord. And I want to end with this, is that the wilderness is a place, it's a place of preparation. Let me just read something to you in verses 44 to 45. It says this, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his servant became, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down. Verse 45, and it says this, And when he rose from prayer. Let me just pause for a moment. Do you know, as important as it was for Jesus to spend time with the Father, the point was not for him to stay in the wilderness, but eventually he had to get up because there was a mission that he was called to complete. And I'm glad that he did it because Jesus was willing to face death, hell, and the grave. And because he was willing to be tortured for our healing, we are here today. This is the good news. And if Jesus modeled this in his life of ministry, this is a picture of what our lives is called to be. The balance between the masses and the multitude and getting alone with the Father. My expectation here is when I think and I look at this group, not just the people here, but the people represented from the people in this, in this room right now, is that when we talk about we want to reach a city to touch the world, this is not just a nice idea. This is not just a nice slogan. But as we continue to get the heart of our Heavenly Father on a day-by-day basis, communion with him, God will give us the grace to reach this city, to reach our cities, to touch the world. Let me just pray. Father, I thank you so much for the ministry and the example of ministry that we see in the life of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for every single person under the sound of my voice right now. God, that we would commit to learning to hear your voice to the degree that your voice will be amplified above every other voice in our lives. God, I'm asking that we would honor you in all that we do and that we would be people who prioritize time with our Heavenly Father. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.